chapter 33, and this is God's word to you because he is your peace. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to, to my Lord at Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and uh, built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And uh, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the, uh, the, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of the land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we thank you that it, even though it is not our nature to seek you out, to trust in you, to pray to you, to have a relationship to, with you, you have sought us out and that you have reconciled us to yourself through our Lord Jesus. Would the gospel the offer of your grace and your offer of reconciliation always uh, be at the heart of our church? Would it define who we are as a community, as, as people? And would you give us faith to embrace that free offer of grace you've shown to us in Christ? So I pray now that your spirit would come and that you would uh, apply your word to um, the lives of those who are sitting here. You know the things that are happening in their lives. I pray um, that you would uh, lead their minds and their hearts uh, um, to be opened um, that they could come and uh, trust in Jesus and uh, taste of his goodness. And would that impact all of us, how we relate to each other, to our families, to our neighbors. Um, and we ask this in his mighty name. Amen. Uh, so we are uh, looking at this morning at the topic of reconciliation. This is uh, kind of a climactic 
passage in uh, Jacob's life, you know, uh, early on in Jacob's life, uh, much of kind of the defining events of his life happened with his brother Esau, who uh, he very early on, he just, you know, got Esau to sell him his birthright, and then he deceived their father Isaac into getting Esau's blessing. You know, he dressed up like Esau and, and pretended he was Esau so that he got the firstborn blessing, and it, and it enraged Esau uh, so deeply that uh, Esau wanted to murder his brother. And that was a significant event in Jacob's life because Jacob actually had to leave his homeland. He went several hundred miles northeast up to, uh, uh, um, up to his uh, uncle's Laban's place in uh, Haman and, uh, uh, Haran. Sorry. And uh, he, uh, he spent 20 years there. He's been alienated from his brother for 20 years. He's never talked to him. He has no idea uh, what to expect. And now he's come home and he's facing his brother. And, of course, as we read in this passage, it turns out that uh, even though he doesn't know what their meeting is going to be like, it's this very warm embrace. And, uh, and, there's, uh, and I think that uh, this story is particularly relevant to us as Christians because um, reconciliation, uh, two people alienated from each other coming together and embracing each other is right at the heart of what um, it means for us to be Christians. Right, because uh, you know, I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul, described his ministry when he was going out sharing the gospel with people, telling people about Jesus. He said that his ministry was a ministry of reconciliation. And you know, Jesus says, "Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the people who make reconciliation. People who are odds with each other brings them together and makes peace, for they shall be called sons of God." To be like God means to be a, a reconciler, a peacemaker. And of course. Uh, even more central than that is the gospel, that um, our central belief is the gospel that, um, that we were hostile to God, we were enemies of God, that um, our nature is to shove God out of our life and to say we want to live our own life, and yet God came to us in Jesus, and he died for all of our sins, to forgive our sins, uh, to make peace with us. And so reconciliation is, uh, if anything is going to define us as a people, it is the topic of reconciliation. This is what we are all about. And um, not only is it the, the one thing that should define us, um, but I think the reason for that is you, you see this, this great verse in verse 4 that says that Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed on him, or and kissed him, and they wept together. They wept together. These two brothers who've been gone for 20 years are weeping in each other's arms. And what that tells us is that being reconciled to people that we've been alienated from being joined together in relationship is something that each of us deeply longs for. We long for the experience of reconciliation. For those of you who have experienced that in relationships that you thought were irreconcilable and you came together and it, there's actually peace, there, it, it touches us at a very deep level. And, um, and, but the thing about reconciliation is, um, you know, reconciliation isn't, you know, kind of a command where you can just say, God says, reconcile the people, and you just say, okay, I'll do that. I'll go reconcile the people. It just doesn't work like it. It's not something you can just do. It's really an art form. It's a craft. And like any craft, um, there are certain kind of rules of thumb that define uh, how you go about doing that, and, uh, and if you're going to do that craft well. And so what I want to talk about this morning is four kind of principles, four rules of thumb that we see in this passage um, that I think will give us a realistic understanding of what is involved in true reconciliation, to have a realistic picture of how it works, how it happens, how is it even possible, and um, how in the gospel, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have 
the most powerful resources to lead us into re reconciliation uh, of anyone. And so I want to look at uh, four principles uh, this morning. And uh, the first of them, first principle is this. Reconciliation feels dangerous. Whenever you enter into reconciliation, whenever you're uh, attempting real reconciliation, you are going to feel like you are in danger. And uh, which I think is something that we, you know, you have to kind of settle that in your mind. If you've been alienated from someone and you're going to move towards them, uh, it is, you are going to, you need to know that you're going to feel like you're in danger because most of us, the idea of reconciliation, let's all be, let's all be friends, you know, let's make up, let's, let's put down the fighting and let's be friends. It sounds great, doesn't it? And, and, you know, let's, let's have peace in the world. You know, why can't we all just get along kind of thing? It sounds very nice, but the reason that reconciliation is so rare is because of the danger that we feel when we move into it. And, um, of course, you see that with Jacob here, verse 1. You can uh, sense it. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. Ominous, threatening. Okay, these are, uh, you know, Esau's a hunter. Esau, Esau's a killer. These are his fellow killer hunter uh, warriors are coming. Uh, and, uh, and so it says, and so uh, Jacob divided the children among Leah and, you know, and Rachel and the two female servants. So all his children, he gets them into different camps. He's trying to minimize his losses. And, um, and so I think we see a couple things in this verse. That first of all, as Jacob approaches, uh, Jacob approaches Esau, he knows that Esau has the power to hurt him. Esau has the power to hurt him. And he doesn't know what Esau's disposition is. And I'll tell you that um, for most of us, if, if we have been alienated from someone, if there is a rift in a relationship with someone, as we move close to them, usually that person knows how to hurt us, and we know that. And that's why we've been alienated from them, is uh, we know that they have that certain power, that um, they could hurt us. And if, if we're going to move towards them, uh, we know that we're stepping into, into danger. We are exposing ourselves. We are vulnerable to them. It, it, particularly vulnerable to them more than we are so to other people. And yet, of course, reconciliation will never happen. If, if, if we don't face that fear, reconciliation uh, will never happen. I think that's why reconciliation is rare, and um, I think that's probably true for Jacob. I, don't, I, don't, I think of this passage, Jacob actually wasn't sure that he was going to go and face Esau. He's been putting it off. And um, because the second thing you see in this passage is, is there at the beginning where it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau. And uh, in the book of Genesis, that little phrase, you know, someone lifted up their eyes and behold, someone was there, is kind of a little uh, indicator of God's providence, that God is acting. That God is uh, putting Esau in his presence. You know, uh, earlier in Genesis 22, uh, when uh, Abraham was going to uh, sacrifice his son Isaac, this kind of frightening passage uh, all of a sudden the angel of the Lord comes and stops Abraham and says don't do it and, uh, and it says Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold there was a, a ram behind him that he was going to offer in the place of his son God inter intervened God showed up God acted and I think what's happening here is that Jacob you know Jacob went off by himself last week and uh, he wrestled with the Lord and I don't even think he's ready to face Esau yet and so uh, God crosses their paths God puts them face to face because Jacob's not going to enter into it himself because of the danger of it. And, but God forces him into it. And um, 
I think that God will often force us into situations to face people that we're afraid of. And, you know, I can only imagine that for some of you that's going to be this week, Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, families are where some of our deepest alienation is happening, difficult relationships. And Thanksgiving is this <laughs> time where God is forcing us face-to-face with people that are, alienate, that are alienated from us. And... Um, and uh, reconciliation always feels dangerous. And uh, Miroslav Wolf uh, is a theologian. I, I'm not sure where he is now. I think he's been at Notre Dame and at Yale. And he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, which is a book on reconciliation. And uh, actually, he's a, he's a Cro- Croatian. And so he grew up um, in the midst of all kinds of genocide and uh, you know, ethnic cleansing. And he has written this book as a Christian saying how you, know, you have these, these ethnic groups that hate each other. How can they, what resources does the gospel have? Does, uh, Christ, do Christians have for bringing people who hate each other together to actually embrace each other in love, which Jesus calls us to? And I, I put a quote from you on page three of your bulletin uh, from his book. And this is what he said. There is the risk of embrace. I open my arms, make a movement of the self toward the other, the enemy, and do not know whether I will be misunderstood, despised, even violated, or whether my action will be appreciated, supported, and reciprocated. I can become a savior or victim, possibly both. Embrace is grace, and grace is is gamble always. When we're entering to reconciliation, it is always an act of risk, and we need to know that beforehand. And so what that means is that if we're going to pursue reconciliation, it it only happens when we say, I know this is a dangerous situation, and I'm just going to show up in the midst of it. I'm going to put myself in the midst of it, and I'm going to see what God will do. Because I don't know how it's going to work. I'm just going to show up. Now, but since we're just showing up, since we're in danger, since we know we're, you know, someone who's hurt us, we're going to put ourselves, you know, put ourselves face to face with them. We know that they can hurt us more. We know they've hurt us in the past. We know that they can hurt us again. Um, that makes the second principle of reconciliation uh, especially difficult. And the, um, and the second principle is this, that reconciliation begins with humility. Reconciliation always begins with humility. And, uh, you know, of course, humility is hard. When, you, when you're feeling threatened, it's hard to humble yourself and, uh, before someone. And yet, this, look at what we see with Jacob here, verse 2. And Jacob put the uh, servants with the children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and uh, Joseph last of all. He himself went before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. He's bowing to the ground. And what Jacob is doing is he's setting, uh, he's uh, creating the setting for reconciliation through his humility. He is creating space. He's creating an opportunity for reconciliation through his humility. And um, I think his humility means a couple things. First of all, it means uh, that he's giving up his control, right? You know, when when he's coming and he's uh, bowing down, he's doing this thing where he puts the forehead and the nose to the ground seven times. This was a fairly standard way that a vassal coming into like a king's court or a pharaoh's court would approach the, the pharaoh or the king as he bows down seven times as he approaches him. And so he's, he's, he, and he keeps calling Esau his lord. He says, my lord Esau. And he's bowing down before him. And, uh, 
And what Jacob is saying in this passage is that I'm not the one in control of this relationship. You're in the, I'm letting you have control. I'm giving up control. And um, it is amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. I, I don't know. How, how does that happen? For someone to step into a relationship um, where they know that they've been hurt and to some degree give up control. Because control is how we protect ourselves. And he's saying I'm not the one in control here. But also... So that's humility. But second, his humility means that he's acknowledging his own fault. He's acknowledging his own fault in this this relationship. And um, I think there's a uh, clear sense in this passage that the reason that he's bowing down, he's all humble before his brother Esau, is not simply because because he's afraid of Esau, but I think because he knows that he's also wronged Esau. And there's... uh, uh, you know, I mentioned that he stole, he stole Esau's blessing from Isaac 20 years earlier, and that's kind of been the thing that caused a rift in their relationship. But you can almost feel in this passage how that event is weighing on his conscience. Look at this. Uh, follow with me. Hebrew scholars have noticed this in, in verse 10, how Jacob said, uh, Jacob said uh, as he's trying to appease Esau, he says, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. See that word present? Is a gift. I'm giving you a gift. Accept my gift. But then he changes words later in the passage. He goes on, for I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and uh, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have because I have enough. You see, he switches words to blessing. And you know how that is when uh, you're there's a. Uh, you have a rift in a relationship. There, you're alienated from someone. There's, there's conflict. There are certain words, certain topics that when you bring them up, <laughs> stir up the relationship and uh, ignite everything. And you're kind, of, you know, you're kind of on guard with everyone. But if you bring that up, you know that you're bringing up the big issue. And so he subtly says, accept my present, accept my blessing. And what he's subtly saying is he says, I know that I wronged you by stealing your blessing. Now accept my blessing. I stole your blessing, and now I want to give it back. I want to make right on what I did wrong. And that's the essence of his uh, humility is that Jacob is setting the stage for reconciliation by saying, for one, I'm not, I'm not going to be in control in this situation, but I'm also willing to admit my fault in this relationship. And, uh, you know, does that mean did Jacob uh, or has Esau done things wrong? In this relationship, yes. <laughs> Esau wanted to murder Jacob. He was hunting him down. So Jacob had to go hundreds of miles away to free, flee from him for 20 years. So yes, and, and, um, but Jacob doesn't mention those things. Jacob is coming with his own faults, addressing his own faults. And let me just tell you, when, you, when we humble ourselves before someone, we make reconciliation possible. You all know this. You know that humility is disarming. Humility disarms people. When you admit your own faults, it frees them. It gives them the chance. It gives them the opportunity to put down their guns, to put down their defenses, and to admit their own faults. You know, that's what uh, Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. And, uh, you know, I, I, of course, you know, I, I know almost every argument I've ever had, you know, Shannon and I have had in our marriage always comes down to one of us saying, I'm sorry that I did dot, 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 whatever it was. I, I know that was wrong. Period. No, I know that that was wrong, but you did that, and it really got me going. Not that. This is what I did wrong, period. 
And whenever we do that, it opens the opportunity for the other person to say, yeah, I know that I was doing it wrong too. That's what humility does. It disarms. It, uh, it, 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 lets, it creates a space for people to come close to us. And I'll tell you that as Christians, just logically speaking, there is no quality that should, you know, logically be more natural for us than humility. Um, because, you know, you look at this passage. Who's a Christian in this passage? Do you know who the Christian is? I mean, it's, uh, it's Jacob. Jacob is the one who has God's covenant blessings. He's the chosen one. He's the one who has a relationship with God. As far as we know, Esau is godless. You know, he's, a, he's the, the kind of uh, jock, uh, hunter, likes food, kind of worldly guy. And, uh, and Jacob is a Christian, and yet Jacob is the one who has to humble himself before the non-Christian. I'll just tell you that, you know, if we, if our understanding of what it means to be a Christian is that we are all, you know, we're the community of the righteous, where we decide, you know, I, want, I don't want to be unrighteous, I want to be one of the righteous. So we come and we understand that we're all the people here who love God and we do what God obeys, and all the people out in the world are the ungodly people who, who disobey God and they're unrighteous and they're ungodly. It's going to be, if that's our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, when we come into conflict at work, with a non-Christian or, or in our families with people who are non-Christians or our neighbors who are non-Christians, um, we're gonna, our um, automatic thought is going to be, listen, this person is godless. They don't even love God. Of course they're the ones that are, they're the ones that are causing this relationship to be difficult. And we're going to say, I'm the righteous one. I, just, how, I, why would I need to humble myself and confess my sin to this godless non-Christian? <laughs> right? And, and the fact is that Christians are often criticized for exactly that, that kind of arrogance. But if we understand that what it means to be a Christian is that we are all far more sinful than we ever imagined. And that the only reason I'm a Christian is because I've come to see how deeply sinful I am. I can't even control it. It just comes out of me. And I, and I, I know that I'm far worse than anyone ever, anyone knows. And that the only reason that I'm accepted by God is because of Jesus' forgiveness. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. That's the only reason I'm a Christian is because of God's grace, not because of my good works, but because of his grace, then I fully expect if I'm in a conflict with some, someone, I'm just going to assume I probably did something wrong. <laughs> I just know that's who I am. Humility uh, should be the thing that we understand about ourselves more than anything is that we're sinners. And I should fully expect that there are going to be non-Christians who are more righteous than I am, that I'm going to have to humble myself before and say, you know, that was really wrong, the way I talked to you, or what I did to you, the way I treated you. And I, I wish I wasn't like that. Let me just tell you, how powerful is that going to be for a non-Christian? When Christians approach them that way, that we see our own sin. We don't see that we're the righteous. We see that we're sinners who are saved by sheer grace. And we approach them with that humility. Well, um, the gospel gives us that humility. And, um, but of course, there is, you know, there is the case of where people are going to wrong us. People have done really wrong things to us. They've mistreated us. And, you know, when we get in that situation, you know, oftentimes we think, you know, if I would be perfectly happy if, if they bowed down to me seven times and approached me with their nose to the ground and called me Lord, I'd be happy to forgive them. I really would if they would uh, confess their wrong. And, uh, and, but, you know, they've really wronged me. How am I going to be the one to humble myself? But as we look at the gospel, how were we reconciled to God? How did God make peace with us? I mean, we're the ones who need to bow down and admit our faults to God, and yet what did God do? He humbled himself. 
Remember that great, uh, that amazing uh, passage from Philippians 2. Have this in mind among, you, uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being, uh, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God humbled himself. He, he didn't wrong us. We're the ones who wronged him, and yet he put himself below us to seek reconciliation, to create a space so that we could have peace with him. That's the character of our God. And um, that, I think, leads to the, uh, the third principle about uh, reconciliation, not just that it feels dangerous, and not just that it begins with humility, but also that reconciliation is enabled by grace. The only way that we can become a people of reconciliation, that can become a habit of our life, is that when grace has captured us, and uh, you can see actually grace is kind of all over this passage. Uh, let me just point out a few uh, here. Verse 5, and when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these all with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. He says, the blessing of my life is all grace from God. And Esau said, uh, what do you mean by all this company that I met? J Jacob answered, to find favor in your sight, uh, in the sight of my Lord. That word for favor, the Hebrew word, is the same word for grace, to find grace. Why am I here to find grace in your sight? And Jacob said, no, uh, verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor, again, grace in your sight. Verse 11, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. The big topic about this passage is that there's grace kind of smothered, sprinkled everywhere in it. And I think it's for that reason, actually, that this passage uh, was particularly fascinating to, to Jesus. Uh, this was a passage that Jesus had heard um, all his childhood and that he had studied. And for some reason, it, uh, I think for this reason, because Jesus' life was all about reconciliation. It was about peace. It was about forgiveness. It was about grace. And s this passage captured Jesus um, and made a deep impression on him. And I don't know if maybe you noticed this when I was reading it. Um, there's a bit of Jesus' teaching that he draws from this passage there in verse 4. You hear that again? But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Does that sound familiar? You know what that's from? Jesus borrowed that almost verbatim for his most famous parable, the prodigal son, the story of the, uh, the son who says to his father, you know, I, I don't want to be your son anymore. I, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. Takes his father's inheritance, blows it on reckless living and prostitutes, and when he's at the bottom of the pit, he says, you know, I should go back to my father. I'll ask him if I can be a servant in his household. That'd be better than this life. And he's on his way back to give this speech to his father about, I want to be your servant. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father sees him far off. And what does he do? He runs to him. And he embraces him. And he falls on his neck and he kisses him. And uh, the son begins to give him the speech. He says, ah, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father interrupts him and he says, get the robe, get the ring, get some shoes, kill the fatted calf, we're having a party. My son was lost and he's found, he was dead, you know, he's dead and now he's alive. And there's this celebration and it's this, the great, Jesus' greatest story of grace. And the, the image of the father he borrows from Esau here. And you see that this is the same thing. This is exactly what's happening with Jacob. You know, Jacob comes uh, to Esau. You know, he's calling him Lord. I want to be your servant. I'm bowing down. 
And, um, and he's sending him all these gifts to pacify him. And this is what it says in verse 8. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? In the last chapter, uh, Jacob has been uh, sending these servants ahead of him with all these presents for Esau. And he says, what's with all the presents? What are you trying to do? And Jacob answered, to find favor in your sight, my Lord. Jacob's saying, I want to buy your forgiveness. I want to buy a relationship with you. I want to I, I buy uh, getting rid of your anger. And then we have this great line uh, from Esau. He says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. He says, you're not my servant. You're my brother. It's the same thing in the prodigal son. The father says, you're not my servant. You're my son. That's why I'm going to put the robe on you. That's why I'm welcoming you home. That's why we're going to throw a party for you that you're back. Is because you're my son. And uh, let me just tell you that many of us think that God is an angry Esau who's hunting around with 400 of his hired men and he's just waiting to get his hands on us so that he can make us pay for the wrongs that we've done to him. That's how we think God is. He wants to get his hands on us so that he can make us pay. And so when, our, when we understand our relationship to God, we say, well, if God's angry with me, i got to do whatever I can to appease his anger. i got to say the right words. i got to come up with these speeches. i got to be on good behavior. i got to um, be bowing down seven times. And what Jesus says is if you want to know what God is really like, look at Esau in this passage. He's running. He's embracing. He's kissing. He's weeping. That's God. I'm not making that up. That's what God's really like that. Running, embracing, kissing, weeping. Jesus says that. That's, he looks at Esau and he says, that's God. <laughs> that's what God is like. And uh, let me just tell you, you know, for those of you who say reconciliation, when people have wronged me, is, seems impossible for me. When someone has hurt me, it is so hard for me to move close to them. It, it's impossible that I would actually humble myself and move close to them and create a space for them. The question I have for you is, have you tasted the God who runs to you, the God who embraces you, who kisses you and weeps over you? Have you experienced that? Do you know that God is that way towards you, that he's running towards you? Have you embraced that grace? Because the fact is, it is absolutely impossible for us to reconcile with anyone or to humble ourselves before anyone or walk in fear towards anyone unless we have experienced that grace, first of all. Um, the, the God who runs. And um, that's why in our church, when you come here every week, <laughs> I largely don't tell you these are all the things you need to do for God. Because that won't change your heart. That won't make you someone who's going to humble yourself and, and, and move towards people in fear. The thing I tell you is look at all the things that God's done for you. Look at how God's humbled himself to, make, to reconcile himself to you. Look how God's run to you and embraced you and kissed you and weeped over you. Look at what God's done. It's because that's what actually changes our hearts. And as we hear that over and over again, it disarms us. God's humility disarms us and puts our guns down and softens us and makes us gentle and makes us humble and makes us move towards people. And so, um, which turns out that that is important too. When you experience grace, reconciliation is only enabled by grace. But God does want us to move past experience his reconciliation to pursuing reconciliation with others. And so uh, we've seen these principles that reconciliation feels dangerous. It begins with humility. And it is enabled by grace. But lastly, reconciliation is how we teach each other the gospel. 
how are we going to learn the gospel is we're going to learn it from each other, from experiencing reconciliation and humility as we embody that for one another. And uh, so what that means is that on the one hand, you know, we need to experience God's grace in order to show grace to other people. But also we need to experience each other's grace in order to really believe that God loves us and that God uh, treats us with grace. And you see this uh, here in verse 10. You know, if you don't believe me that Esau is like God, here uh, Jacob says it very clearly, verse 10. For I have seen your face. This is Jacob speaking to Esau. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. I've seen your face. Seeing your grace is like seeing the face of God and you accepted me. And, uh, you know, just this week I was down at Elizabeth Station with Randy Williams. Uh, some of you know, if you don't know Randy, Randy's a uh, marriage and family therapist here in town. And we were talking a little bit about his work. And, and he was telling me that, you know, as a therapist, kind of his job is to work himself out of a job. You know, because he has people who come and meet with him. And his goal is so that they, they would get plugged into a community like a church and and they would have other relationships uh, that are doing what he's doing with them and oftentimes he was telling me that you know he'll he'll be meeting with people and they'll uh they'll say well you know i'm just afraid that if i let someone really into my life if i really let them know who i am or, or move close to people that they're going to reject me that they're not going to accept that they're going to turn me away from them and he would often say to them he says listen uh you're sharing with me right now about your life. Are you feeling rejected right now? They're like, no, I'm not, you know, and he's loving them. He's caring for them, and he's being gentle and, and listening and patient and uh, not pressuring them. And he says, what you're experiencing, you're experiencing grace right now. Is God gracious towards you? He's giving you grace. You're experiencing it in this room right now, face to face. And what we have is the opportunity as we uh, move towards one another, as we are, are humble, we're gentle, we're not pushy. We let people speak with us um, and be honest with us and, and come to us in humility that's not perfect. We teach each other the gospel because we experience it in flesh and blood. We become an embodiment to one another of the grace that God shows us. And I'll tell you, that's... Uh, uh, some of you know Paul for that. He's an elder here in the church. He's, he's always uh, reminding me that, that uh, the, the token of a healthy church, the sign of a healthy church, is that there's an atmosphere of grace. You walk in and you can smell, you can feel in the air um, that God's grace is present here. So that's God's calling for us. And it's through believing the gospel, knowing the gospel, experiencing God's grace to us. May we become that kind of community. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you are a God who runs to us, embraces us, uh, kisses us, falls upon our neck, and weeps over us. That this is really who you are. Would you give us faith to believe that? And uh, we thank you for this word. Would you make us, through that grace, also a people of reconciliation? Would you teach us humility? Would you teach us courage? And would that happen in this church? Is there going to be things in this church that we need to uh, face and walk through together? Would the gospel guide us? We ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus, our peace. Amen. Amen.